Well, back in 1987, North Korea set out to build what would be the world's tallest hotel and the seventh largest building in the world. They wanted to attract international investors and commerce. It was to be 105 stories tall, to cost $230 million. As the cost rose to $750 million, though, the project was abandoned. It still sits there today. It made it to its full height, but it's completely empty. In fact, it was deemed structurally unsound. What was supposed to be a beacon of prosperity is sadly now a monument of failure. Unfortunately, we all know what this is like to a degree. To start something great, only not to finish it. There are countless stories of people not finishing what they started. I mean, how many of you have projects around the house where you've, you've started, but they've never been finished? How many times have you said, okay, today's today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean the garage, and yet you still can't park the car in there? Sadly, it's in the nature of man to not finish what he starts. We're often limited by time, resources, even death. Countless renowned authors and artists left great works on the drawing table because they were cut short by death. On April 12, 1945, an artist began to paint the presidential portrait of FDR. They took a break around noon. That painting was never finished because he died later that day. For one reason or another, we all have tales of not finishing what we start. But thankfully, we can say we do not inherit this proclivity from God. God is just the opposite. He always finishes what he starts. He's not limited by time or power or ability or death or anything. If he wants to do something, there will be no stopping it, which is why scripture speaks of him. Our God sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Now, this would be a terrifying truth if God were evil, because who could stop him? We can give thanks, though, that God is good, and we know that he's enacted a plan to re- redeem fallen mankind. We can have full assurance that God will complete that plan. He will finish what he started. And you really should thank God for that, because just imagine the alternative, that the total life of fear, wondering, is God going to revoke my heavenly citizenship today? Is he going to pull the plug on his plan of salvation tomorrow? But again, thankfully, we need not live in such fear because Scripture gives us full assurance that God will finish what he started. And this most certainly applies to our salvation. There's a lesson we started to learn last week from Philippians chapter 1. We're going to take it further and explore it further today. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open them to, once again, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Just a few weeks ago, we ventured into this new study through this book of the Bible. We covered Paul's introduction, his greeting, his prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippians, all good stuff. As usual, though, his introduction is loaded with a lot of stuff, a lot of doctrine, and in particular, one verse stands out, and that was verse 6, Philippians 1, verse 6, where he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Far from being unsure, Paul was 100% confident that the same God who started the good work of salvation in their lives would finish it. This is quite the strong statement, espousing what many have since called the perseverance of the saints, or alternatively, the preservation of the saints. And we briefly commented on this doctrine last week, but to be honest, it's not the main point of the whole passage, so we skirted around it. But don't think we would ever skip over something so important. Sadly, I know of all too many churches who would purposely avoid passages like this. 
They expressly do not want to preach or touch on doctrine, especially controversial doctrine. Why? Well, for one, it's complicated stuff, takes a lot of study and research and, and knowledge. But also, you run the risk of offending people. It's not that popular. And, you know, no one wants to go to church to hear doctrine. Doctrine, that's irrelevant to the common person with common problems. Just stay, save that stuffy knowledge for the theologians in their ivory towers. But all this could not be further from the truth because doctrine really matters. Truth matters. What God's word says matters. And, you know, that's all that doctrine is, by the way. It's just what the Bible says about a given topic. That's what doctrine is. And when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, specifically whether or not you can lose your salvation, don't you want to know what the Bible has to say about that? I bet you do, and you should, and you need to. Uh, I can't control how people will respond to what the Bible says, whether they will like it or not, whether it's popular or not. But we're called to preach and sit under the whole counsel of God's word. And you can't just skip over the hard parts, the difficult parts. All the more so, we're called to contend with them and grapple with them and apply them to our lives all the more. And we're going to do that today. So we're back this morning for, you could say, a doctrinal sermon stemming from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 on the perseverance of the saints. Now, it's my job to make sure that just because this will be kind of like a doctrinal sermon, that doesn't mean it's a boring sermon. Doctrine shouldn't be boring. God's word should not be boring. It's, it's living, it's active. And I'll, I'll at least tell you this. If you have any interest in the security of your salvation, well, I think you'll at least be intrigued. Let's get into it. Look back at Philippians 1, verse 6. We, we already covered how this verse fits in the context of Philippians 1. We're not, we're not going to do that again. Instead, I want to point out and, and springboard off of the, a key truth embedded in this verse, and it's found throughout Scripture. Now, there's actually two weighty truths found in Philippians 1.6 concerning our salvation. We learn here both about the beginning of our salvation and the end. And specifically, God is in charge of both. Look at the verse again. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. According to this verse, who begins the work of salvation? God. Salvation is God's work. He gets it going. Yes, we must respond in faith, but God must open our hearts and enable us to respond in the first place. Now, this truth we've already devoted a couple sermons on, actually, back in Acts 16, which was our, our foundation for the book of Philippians. We, we spent a lot of time covering the, the beginning of salvation. So instead, today, I want to focus on the, the second truth concerning the completion of our salvation. And here, Paul's confidence is that God will do that, too. He will bring it to completion. He will perfect the work he started. Our salvation, it's, it's secure, but it's not yet fully applied. You know, we're saved, but here we are. We're still in the flesh. We have unredeemed bodies. And so we await the, the finality of our salvation, which is referred to as the day of Christ Jesus or the resurrection, when we will be glorified and made like him. How do we know that day will come for us, though? How do we know we'll, we'll get there? Well, because God finishes what he starts. He who began a good work in you will complete it. And it's this latter notion we want to spend our time exploring this morning. Again, this concept is often referred to as the perseverance of the saints, or you could say that the preservation of the saints. 
And simply put, this doctrine states salvation is permanent. Once a person is truly saved, he or she cannot lose that salvation. True believers will persevere in the faith their entire lives because God preserves them in the faith their entire lives. Now, this does not mean true believers can't backslide, as some might call it, or fall into serious sin. But it does mean that all who are truly born again will die in the faith. This also means that if any so-called Christian rejects the faith and turns away from Christ, well, they're revealing they were never truly saved to begin with. That's because the nature of saving faith is to forever endure. So if someone's faith vanishes for good, it's simply displaying it was never true saving faith to begin with. Now, some of you might already be quite familiar with these truths from Scripture. But at the same time, I would ask, do you know where in the Bible this is taught? Can you support this from Scripture? And for those of you who haven't heard this before, maybe this is new to you, you've never heard this teaching, well, that's the same question you need to ask. Is this really taught in the Bible? Does the Bible really say this? That's that's all we care about here, and that's all we're going to ask. What does the Bible say about this? Well, having already studied Philippians 1.6, It's going to be very hard to say otherwise. It's a pretty clear verse. Speaking of salvation, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I really don't see how you could flip that around and make it say something else. God starts the work of salvation in you. He will ensure that it's completed and you reach the finish line. But we're going to take it further and look at some other verses that flesh out this truth. There are two sides to this coin, and we'll look at both. The first side, number one, God's side, preservation. Let's start with this. Number one, God's side, preservation. The perseverance of the saints actually begins with God. For apart from his preserving power, we could not persevere. God himself, though, he he promises to keep his children in his kingdom, and there's nothing that can stop him from keeping that promise. So why don't we start by looking at some of the clearest verses on this from the mouth of our Lord himself. So turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Like I said, we'll we'll be springing board off of Philippians and and now going elsewhere. John chapter 6, first stop. Here Jesus is speaking to a crowd that is assembled not long after he fed the 5,000. They were following him, though, not because of the sign, but because they wanted more free bread. So he tells them, you know, they're missing the point. He is the bread of life. Just come down out of heaven. If they would only believe in him, they would live forever. The question is, who will believe though? Who's actually going to believe him? And Christ explains in John 6, look at verse 37. He says to the crowd, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Who will come to Jesus? Who's going to believe? He says, all whom the Father gives to him. No more, no less. And it's a certainty. All will come. They will come to Jesus in belief. And when they do come, they will certainly not be cast out. For, verse 38, for, he says, I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will of God who sent Christ? Verse 39. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, 
but raise it up on the last day. See, Christ came down from heaven to redeem and receive a bride, a body of believers given to him by the Father. This group we would call the church. And regarding these people, true believers, he says, none of them will be lost. I will lose nothing. Jesus states very plainly God's will, which he carries out, that all those who come to him, they will be saved and none will be lost. Jesus will raise them up on the last day, which is reference to, again, glorification. That's the finish line of the faith. Same thing Paul referenced in Philippians 1.6, where he says, God will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God started you on this race, and he will finish you on this race. Now, speaking of, in the same passage, Jesus likewise affirms God starts you on the race of salvation. That's his work too. Look at verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Christ is being pretty clear. No one can come to him. You don't have the ability unless the Father draws the person first. But of all those whom God starts this good work of salvation, Christ ensures the security of their salvation. He says they will be raised up. They will be glorified. Now, to be sure, Jesus isn't saying we're totally passive like we're robots or something. We, we have a part to play, a very important part. You must believe. And so in the same context, he says, for example, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And that's true. Who, who has eternal life? Well, whoever believes. Whosoever believes. And you must believe in Jesus to be saved. But God does not work apart from our belief. However, Christ teaches plainly, like Philippians 1.6, God starts the work and he finishes the work. This is the eternal security of the believer. Now, jump over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We go from Jesus as the bread of life to Jesus as the good shepherd. Another great metaphor. He's teaching the crowd. They're trying to figure out who he is. Is he the Christ or not? Look at verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Just think about this. These people, they had seen great signs. Jesus feeding the 5,000, healing a man born blind. But they still did not believe in him. Why not? He says in verse 26, You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Notice the careful wording there. He doesn't say, hey, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. You see, all the sheep, all those whom the Father gives to Jesus, will come to believe in him, and they will be secure. If this sounds radical to you, don't believe me. Don't take my word for it. What does he say? Look at verse 27. He continues. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. In the last verse, of course, we have a stunning revelation of Christ's identity as the God-man. But our focus is on his relationship to the sheep. And again, we learn the sheep, true believers, they've been given to Jesus as a group by the Father. And they will follow Jesus and he gives eternal life to them. And as a result, verse 28, they will never perish. They will never perish. Why not? Well, because he holds them in his hand and no one is able to snatch them out of Christ's hand. Who is greater than Christ? Who can take someone out of his securing grasp? And to really seal the deal, he adds that God the Father is equally working to protect the sheep. And in case you're wondering, he says, I and the Father in one. This is God the Son and God the Father working together to secure the believer. In fact, the whole triune God comes together to secure the true believer. We learn elsewhere, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. Father, Son, Spirit securing the believer. So Jesus himself gives, gives us very clear teaching on the preservation of the saints. For all true believers, God preserves their salvation, which will never be lost. It can't be lost because God's power is protecting it. God's power started the work. God's power will finish the work. And by the way, God's all-powerful. So who can stop that work? Who can ward off his hand? Christ's teaching on the preservation, preservation of the saints is quite clear. His disciples eventually learn the lesson. Let's hear from one of his disciples now. Let's listen to Peter. You can listen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There you have a, a stunning statement on the beginning of our salvation. Who's responsible? It says, God according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again. God started the work. To what end? Why did God, why did God do this, though? Well, he says in verse 4, he caused us to be born again to obtain an inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, God saved us as a bride for Christ to receive this heavenly inheritance, eternal life. He says this eternal life, it's now reserved for you. There's a, there's a seat at God's table. It has your name on it. How do you know you'll ever get there though? Well, he says you are being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look, it's true. God still works through faith. You have to believe. You must have faith. But God works, too, to start your faith and to finish your faith. This word for protected and gu- or guarded that he used is a present active participle, meaning God is continually guarding your faith. 24-7, he's on the job securing you for how long? Until the end. How about one more verse? There's so many more, but 
Let's hear from Paul. We already heard from Paul in Philippians 1.6. Listen now to how he ends 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians verse 5, chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Here's Paul's final prayer for these beloved Thessalonian believers that they would finish the race. Who will ensure that? Well, God. So he prays to God that God would sanctify them entirely. That's a reference to glorification. He prays they would be preserved. For how long? Well, until the coming of our Lord. Again, glorification. And he banks this prayer entirely on God. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. I don't know how he could be any clearer than that. It sure sounds a lot like he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began it. God ends it. He started it. He will bring it to pass regarding your salvation. Look, I'm telling you, this doctrine, it's, it's not actually complicated and it's not confusing. It's pretty clear and simple and straightforward if you just study the Bible. The real issue is it's a matter of believing what the Bible says. And sadly, I know a lot of people who just push back against these verses and what they teach because you know it, they think it makes us out to be passive robots and, and God is too much in control here. Where do we fit in? But it's really not the place. We have a part to play. I told you this is a two-sided coin. Let's look at the other side now, because this is incomplete without the other side. So we started with God's side, preservation. How about number two, man's side, perseverance. Man's side, perseverance. Of course, there's a human side to the doctrine of perseverance by definition. God requires and commands believers to persevere or remain in the faith. People cannot, nor should they, expect, you know, they can pray the sinner's prayer, you know, during an emotional experience at high school camp, only to abandon the Lord and live their lives entirely apart from God and think they'll still go to heaven. It does not work that way. Rather, true believers must and will persevere in the faith all the way until they die. And so the picture is not of true believers being passive, carefree, and careless, when it comes to their salvation. Rather, because God enables them, they should strive all the more so to grow in Christ-likeness and hold on to Christ until the end. This is man's responsibility in salvation, and it stands side by side with God's sovereignty in salvation all over the place. God's preservation enables us to, to persevere, that's true, but we must persevere. All who fail to persevere will not be saved. You get that? All who fail to persevere will not be saved. Let's look at some strong verses now showing how these two sides of the same coin work together in action. Hearing from a lot of different biblical authors, how about Jude? Jude, in, in his short epistle, he opens and closes with a mention of God keeping believers in salvation. So he says in Jude 1, Jude, 
a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's writing to those who are called by God and kept by God. They're kept by God's power. And likewise, he concludes his letter by saying, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory. Jude's benediction recalls God's power to keep them in the faith, to keep them from falling away. He says God's power will make them stand in glory. So he begins and ends his letter with encouragement that God is their keeper. He is keeping you in the faith. That's God's side, right? That's what God does, his preservation. But what's interesting is just before this, he uses the same word for keep, and he says this in verse 20. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. It makes you think, well, which one is it? Like, is God keeping us in his love, or are we supposed to keep ourselves in his love? And the answer is both. We must persevere in the love of God to the end. We can't do that apart from God's work, but at the same time, God refuses to work apart from us. We have to do our part, which is to persevere. How about this one? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 13 through 15. He says, verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So starting off, How clear is that verse on the beginning of our salvation? He says God chose them from the beginning for salvation. It looks crystal clear to me. And then God called them. This is God's power at work in salvation. God did the choosing. God did the calling. Nevertheless, in light of this, actually, what does he say next? 2 Thessalonians 2, now verse 15. He says, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Look what he did there. Paul does not view our responsibility to persevere as contradictory to God's preservation, but rather complementary. Because God's power is at work to save us, we must persevere. God called us, God chose us. That should spur us on all the more to hold fast to the faith and finish. That's our side. How about we throw in the author of Hebrews now? Might as well. We're hitting all the authors. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. One more here. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, 
so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There are legitimate warnings like this given in Scripture. Don't fall away. You have to hold fast your assurance until the end. God is sovereign, but you can't treat your salvation like it's on autopilot. Your responsibility, rather, is to endure, to not fall away, to hold on to Christ until the end and help others do the same. So look, we can have assurance in this life of our salvation. Yeah, there are, there are other means of assurance. But do you want the ultimate assurance of salvation? Die in the faith. Die still confessing and clinging to Christ as your only hope. That's your ultimate assurance of salvation. For saving faith is an enduring faith. Now, I know a lot of you are probably thinking, well, okay, I mean, these verses, they're clear, but what about people who have fallen away? As we all know, some... Okay, so if Scripture says it's not possible to lose your salvation, it's not possible for true believers to fall away, God will preserve them until the end. They will persevere until the end. Okay, but what do we make of all those people who have fallen away? We know some. You probably know some people. They they used to be a Christian, but now they totally deny Christ. Maybe you know some people who have died in that state. What about them? Well, first, let me simply say this. As a side note, it is possible for true believers to fall into serious sin. Like I said before, some might call it backsliding or getting re-entangled in some serious sins of the flesh. The kicker, though, is that the true believer will not die in such a state. They will not forsake the Lord unto death. The Spirit within them will convict them of their sin and draw them unto repentance as their faith perseveres. It's a different story, though, from the apostate. Someone who has willingly and knowingly abandoned the faith and dies while still denying Christ. What do we make of that person? Well, it's quite clear they were never saved to begin with. They never truly knew the Lord in the first place. That is both the logical consequence of everything we've studied and it's expressly taught in Scripture. Again, I don't want you to take my word for any of this. But this teaching comes from the mouth of our Lord himself. If you want to see it, we'll turn to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching on distinguishing between true and false believers and true and false teachers. So they're out there. False believers, false teachers, they exist. Christ recognizes them and he says, you will know them by their fruit. Good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. You got some people, they, they, they claim to be Christians, but, well, you'll know them by their fruit. The real test is how they live their lives. And in this regard, many are revealed to be false believers. And in this regard, what does Jesus say next? Matthew 7, a familiar passage, I think we know it. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many, not a few, many, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. Think about this group of people. They all claim to be believers. Every one of them in this group claims to be believers. They even confess Jesus as Lord. Hey, I thought Romans 10.9 says if you confess Jesus as Lord, you'll be saved. Well, yeah, that's true. Except we learned their confession was false. Certainly, these people appeared religious. They even claimed great works, prophesying, miracles. Yet in the end, their faith was proven to be a sham. How do we know that? Well, Jesus says they they confessed him with their mouth, but they denied him with their lives. They, They were never born again or transformed. They displayed no evidence of a transformed life. Instead, he says their lives were characterized by what? Practicing lawlessness. They practiced lawlessness, verse 23. They never had true repentance and faith. And to prove this, what does he say to them? He declares, depart from me. I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, depart from me. I used to know you, but you know, you had that hard time and then you fell away. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Not when you claimed me as Lord. I never knew you because your faith was never real. It was always something else. They never had a saving relationship with Christ. And so it goes for many false believers and all who ultimately fall away from the faith. Now, with all this in mind, I I still know this doctrine that the perseverance of the saints gets abused. And that's why a lot of people reject it, because of the abuses associated with it. For example, you ever heard of the phrase, once saved, always saved? It's kind of like the slang for perseverance of the saints. And that phrase, though, has led to a lot of abuse, because it needs to be fleshed out. You know, there's countless stories of people that get worked up in an emotional fervor, And they confess Christ to solve their life's problems. So they they walk the aisle, they raise their hand, they pray the sinner's prayer. And now they're saved, right? And so people come up to them and say, hey, welcome to the kingdom. We love you. We're glad you're here. You made it. And don't forget, once saved, always saved. So you're in forever now. And look, that saying is true. If someone is truly once saved, they will always be saved. But they often fail to tell the person that God's preservation does not work apart from human perseverance after time though the emotional high wears off they aren't getting anything else out of christianity so they walk away from the faith in reality they never really walk the walk to begin with but the real tragedy though is now they have no fear in walking away from the lord why not because someone told them once saved always saved so they think well i'm okay because even though i'm living like the world and ignoring God, they still think they're justified because they they prayed some prayer. And I tell you, that's perhaps the worst situation a person can be in, to be convinced they're healthy when in reality they're desperately sick. Those are the hardest people to reach. In reality, though, such people were never saved. Christ would say, I never knew you. Their confession was coerced out of an emotional high. I've seen it all the time. I'm sure you have as well. Usually stemming from some place of desperation. The proof's in the pudding. They never lived a transformed life. They continued to live in lawlessness. And in the end, if they were truly saved, they would have what? Persevered. You see, when you take man's side out of this equation, you have false teaching. You take God's side out, it's false. You take man's side out, it's false. We have to have both right there together, side by side. 
We believe God must preserve us. He does, but he never preserves us apart from our persevering faith. And that's what you find all throughout Scripture. God's side, man's side. God's sovereignty and salvation, man's responsibility and salvation side by side. And just just let them be. Just let them be side by side. Believe them both. Don't try and knock one down to support the other. Just let them be. And apply both sides to your life. In fact, why don't we finish doing that? Spend a few minutes applying these two sides to our life. First, think about God's side. Preservation. Why is this even revealed in the Bible? Why why did he tell us about it? That God is preserving our salvation. Well, this is revealed in order to give us believers massive encouragement and hope. I mean, look, just think about the truth that God is holding on to you right now and nothing, no force can remove you from his hand, you who are in Christ. That is meant to give you strength and comfort. I mean, the same Jesus who died on the cross and giving his life to to save you, he is still working right now by his power to hold on to you and secure you. That should make you feel good and encouraged. And when you know that God finishes what he starts, you're going to feel secure. I mean, think about Romans 8, a passage we didn't look at. There's so many more, but you know the famous words of God finishing our salvation? It says Romans 8:29, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The verse is known as the golden chain, the unbreakable chain of salvation. God starts that chain and he finishes that chain. Those who've been called and justified, they will be glorified. You can't break that chain. But why, why is he telling us this, though? What's the point of this truth? Well, as Paul goes on to say right after this, it is to encourage us and convince us that God loves us, that we are in the love of God. He says right after verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The answer to that question he goes on to give it is nothing. If, if we are safe in God's hands, Nothing and no one can ever stand against us. Satan and demons can't stand against us. God is greater. Suffering and hardship can kill the body, but our soul is hid with Christ on high. Even our own sin can't separate us from God because Christ, he's already justified us. He's already paid for it all. So he says, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the preservation of the saints. And it's supposed to encourage you. You're in God's love by faith. Let it build you up. God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Even if you lose everything else, you're still in his hands and you are safe with him. Take comfort in God's side, his preservation. But also, let that truth spur you on to your side. Because this truth is also revealed in Scripture to do just that, to to spur us on in the race of faith. We don't have a blank check to sin and live how we want. We, We submit to Christ as Lord. We follow Him now. 
But recognizing that God has called us, he's chosen us, he's brought us to salvation, and he will finish it, all these truths, they're revealed for us believers to, to motivate us. To do what? To persevere. To stand firm in the faith. To not waver in our confession. To hold fast until the end. It's like Hebrews 12 says. Jesus, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Same thing. But that same verse tells us, at the same time, we still must run with endurance the race that is set before us. So do that. In fact, wasn't that tied in back to our original passage, Philippians 1.6? Paul is praising God and encouraging them for God's work of preservation. But in the verse before that, verse 5, didn't he also praise them for their work of perseverance? They had persevered in the gospel until now. In fact, we'll see this again in Philippians, this famous verse that you might know, Philippians 2.12 and 13, where he tells us, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And there it is again, God's side, our side. We are to take joy and encouragement from God's side, his preserving power. And then we're to get to work on our side. Draw strength from God's preserving power and then run with endurance in your Christian life. I hope and trust this doctrine has proved not so complicated after all this morning, but to the contrary, it's simple and yet helpful. Let it build your confidence in God. He finishes what he starts, and he is with you. Therefore, live for him, strive for him, work out your salvation for him, run to him, and don't stop. Double down in your efforts to pursue Christ. Don't ease off the gas pedal, but but floor it and living for him, confident in the knowledge that when that final day comes, as you persevere, he will faithfully deliver you over to his kingdom of joy forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we bless your name this morning for your great work. We remember your work of creation, of course. We think of your work of recreation in in our hearts, the work of salvation, Lord. You chose us. You called us. You you caused us to be born again. You drew us to yourself, opened our hearts to believe. And and we believe. We respond in faith. But we thank you, Lord, for being the author of our faith, the beginner of this great work of salvation. We thank you, Lord. We also thank you for this promise, this assurance held out to us that you're also the finisher of our faith. As we hold on to you, as we cling to you, and we must, we derive great comfort and assurance knowing that you cling to us even even stronger and no one and nothing can snatch us out of your hand. And we thank you for this, Lord. We pray for your encouragement in our lives. Any here struggling with the trials and tribulations of life, And they will come. This is a fallen world. But delight our hearts in this knowledge that we are safe with you. Our soul is secure with Christ on high. And nothing, no disease, no danger can ever change that fact. Our our salvation is secure. May this reality, Lord, spur us on to to greater zeal in the faith, to, to be striving 
toward godliness and toward Christ, our Savior. You've given us so much. How can we not give our entire lives back to you in return? We offer up ourselves, Lord, as living sacrifices unto you for all that you've done for us, just because we love you and you are worthy. We thank you for this this study. May it encourage our hearts this morning, Lord, and we bless your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.